somewhere. Uh, this morning, uh, we are, I'm looking forward to opening God's Word with you guys together. We are on the front end of a study uh, this fall, taking a look at Exodus chapter 20, uh, which contains the Ten Commandments. And we began our study a few weeks ago by framing the Ten Commandments in the context of one of the most central storylines of the Bible, and that is that God is making a people for himself. From beginning to the end, this, one of the most central storylines of the Bible is that God is creating a people who, as Ephesians 1 tells us, is going to be for the praise of his glory. And see, and throughout the storyline, the primary way that God's people glorify him is by obeying his commands. Because, you see, God's commands, they don't just tell us what God wants, they tell us what God is like. God's commands, they don't just tell us what God wants, they show us what, what he is like. You see, the Ten Commandments aren't just some legalistic list of God's favorite rules. They're, they're not an arbitrary list of the ones he was just like feeling especially poignant on the day that he gave those to Moses or something like that. Rather, God's law is a revelation. His commands are a revelation of who he is. They show us what he is like. You see, at the heart of the Ten Commandments isn't a list of rules to follow, but rather a description of what it looks like for God's rescued and redeemed image-bearing people to worship Him, to glorify Him, to reflect His nature and His character into the world. You see, the Ten Commandments, they're not instructions about how to get out of Egypt. They're not instructions about how to save yourself. They're not instructions about how to impress God. Instead, they are a gracious guide that God gives his people, a freed people that shows a free people what it looks like to live in the freedom that God has, that God has bought for them, the freedom that, God has, that he has offered them. And so the Ten Commandments, as we study, they're not intended to be a burdensome list of checklists of just do's or don'ts that you need to muscle through. Instead, as Psalm 19 tells us there, they uh, refresh the soul, they give joy to the heart, and in keeping them, there is great reward. The Ten Commandments, you see, they are an invitation to a life of blessing and freedom that God extends to his people. And so as we've seen so far in the first three commands, that life of freedom and blessing, it has everything to do with worshiping God. The first four commands, or the first four commands are called the first table of law. They all have to do with worshiping God. The, the first command focuses on worshiping the right God. It called us, as we saw, to worship the one true God, to worship him supremely and exclusively. We saw the second command worship, called us to worship the right God in the right way. We're, we're not to fashion our own images of God to worship. We're to worship him as he has revealed himself to be, not as we want him to be. And last week we saw in the third commandment, it focuses on worshiping the name of God. You see, because God's name is a revelation of his identity, because it's about his reputation, we're not to misuse it. Instead, we're to hollow it, to honor it, to exalt it, and both to do that with our words and more importantly, as we saw last week, with our lives. And that leads us to this morning in our study of the fourth command. The fourth command just begins this way, to remember the Sabbath. And if you look at the data about what people think about the, the commands, the Ten Commandments, and the relevancy of the Ten Commandments in our lives. What you find is that the first four commands, uh, they're all primarily about God, but the first four commands, they're always the ones at the bottom of the list, the ones that people think are the most irrelevant of the Ten Commands for the, for the modern person. And in fact, the fourth command, the one we studied this morning, it universally always is at the very bottom of the list. It is always the last one, the one that people think is the most irrelevant 
It's the command that people think is the least applicable to their lives, which really isn't that surprising, seeing as that Christians themselves, we haven't always agreed on what it looks like to obey this command or even whether this command should even be followed at all. And while it's not all that surprising that modern people, whether they identify as Christians or or not, think that the command to remember the Sabbath is the least relevant command, it's actually pretty ironic if you think about it. You see, we live in a culture that seems to run at an endlessly frenetic pace, right? You see, the, a culture that chronically overworks, that endlessly overworks, to the point that healthcare professionals say that overworking is a significant factor in most of the common medical ailments in our society, including everything from anxiety and depression to heart disease and lung ailments to cancers, accidental injuries, and even cirrhosis of the liver. You see, most of us, between our work and our family and our kids and life, we're just tired. You see, and we're not alone because our culture is full of tired, burnt out, overwhelmed, overworked people. You see, and yet we live in a culture that sees the command to rest as the most irrelevant. Doesn't that seem a bit ironic to us? You see, it seems like this is a command that we should all be clamoring to follow. It should be the one that we have to do, the, the needs the least convincing But in reality, you see, it's not just that we see this as irrelevant. We fight this command. You see, we see it as a threat to productivity. We see it as an enemy of efficiency. We we see it as a bond that keeps us from enjoying the freedoms of life whenever we want to and however we want to. You see, all the while, we are endlessly longing for a rest that we can never seem to find no matter what we do and how hard we work. You see, into that tragic blindness that the good news of the life-giving command to remember the Sabbath shines its light. You see, and like the rest of the commands, it diagnoses the real problems in our heart. It shows us the reality of what's going on inside of us. You see, it shows us that the real problem that we have isn't ultimately a work problem, that the real problem we have isn't ultimately a rest problem, that the real problem we have is ultimately a worship problem. Remember the first week I said that the first command Jesus says, it's not just the first, but it's the greatest, that that all of the other commands, they flow out of the first command to, to love God and to worship him supremely and exclusively. You see, the fourth command is given to us to help us make sure that our work doesn't replace God as the overwhelming controlling influence in our life, that, that our work doesn't replace God as our primary source of identity or purpose or security. One pastor says it this way, God graciously wants to make sure that he, not our work, remains our primary focus, our source of identity, and what we depend on for the future. See, as we study the fourth commandment this morning, what I want to show you is that not only does this command still apply to us, but it's actually good news for us. It's good news that shows us a path of freedom and rest and life that God lays out for his people to joyfully walk in. Isaiah 58 talks about it this way. God says, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath, then you will find your joy in the Lord. That's my heart for you this morning as we study, as we think about what it means to remember the Sabbath and to keep it, that God would help you to find life and joy in him. And so to that end, let's pray. We'll dive into our passage together. King Jesus, we are so grateful for our time together in your word this morning. 
God, and I just come to you, uh, just, God, I really need you this morning. God, I just sense my inadequacies. I sense the, the ability that I have that is uh, unequal to the task this morning. And so, God, I ask graciously that you might empower me by your spirit to speak with truth, but also with power. God, not for my good, but for the good of us as we seek to be your kingdom people who, who image you, who reflect you rightly. And so, God, I pray you would meet us in your word, that you would, ref- that you would uh, by your spirit's power, be uh, affecting our hearts and shaping and changing us. King Jesus, we, just, we really need you this morning. And so we ask, in the midst of our crazy, frenetic, overworking hearts and culture, God, that you would call us to rest in you, and that it would be life-giving good news that you help us to respond to. We need you, King Jesus. Amen. This morning, we're in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. It reads this way. The Lord said, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, This morning as we study, and each week as we've taken a look at the Ten Commandments, we want to ask four questions together, uh, four questions that will help us to understand them rightly. And the first is just simply this, what is God instructing his people to believe or do? And how does the New Testament help to uh, reveal the, expound this command, showing us its true scope? The second question, what does this command reveal to us about God? We've said over and over, right, that the commands don't just reveal uh, what God wants, they reveal who he is. And so what is it that God is showing? us about himself in the command. Third, we want to ask, what, how does this command confront us? You see, we talked about how the commands are a, a spiritual MRI. They show us what is sick in our hearts and what is naturally opposed to God and his ways. So what is it that, that, the ten, that this commandment is showing us about ourselves? And lastly, we always want to ask the question, how does the gospel, how does the person and the work of Jesus, how does it enable and motivate and empower us to actually obey? We've seen over and over the Ten Commands, they can only diagnose the problems of our heart. They can only diagnose, they can't cure. And so for that, we need the gospel. So what does it look like for us to be a people in which the gospel is good news that is transforming us? So, Instruction, revelation, confrontation, and transformation. That's our roadmap as we study this morning. So, what's the command to remember the Sabbath all about? What is the in, what's the instruction God is giving us here? Well, I think when people first think about the, the command to remember the Sabbath, we usually jump to questions about what we should or shouldn't do on a Sunday. Can I go out to eat? Can I watch football? Can I mow the lawn? Can I do homework? Do I, am, I, do I, am I required to take a nap? Like, what, what is the stuff I'm supposed to do or not do on this day? I just, I don't really know what's going on there. And, and the truth is this morning is that those are definitely not the questions we should be starting with. They're probably not the questions we should be ending with either. You see, unlike the first three, the fourth commandment doesn't begin with a negative prohibition. Instead, it starts with a positive instruction. It it begins by telling us what we are supposed to be doing. It says this way, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord your God. You see, we'll get to what this command prohibits, but as the command does itself, let's start with what 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 it prescribes. 
and begins by saying to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. The Sabbath is a day to the Lord. That word remember, it has kind of a double meaning, especially for the original audience. You see, for the Israelites, it was a reminder that they had heard about this idea about Sabbath before. On their journey to Mount Sinai, God provided manna or food for them six days out of the seven. And the seventh day was a day meant to be a day of rest, a, a holy Sabbath to the Lord, as Exodus 16 says. And so when they reach Mount Sinai and God gives them the Ten Commandments through Moses, God commanded them to remember the Sabbath, to to recall how he had met their needs every week on their journey. But the command to remember the Sabbath was was about more than just recollecting on the past. It, It is about putting something into practice in the future. See, one commentator writes at this, well, remembering involves more than just our memories, It demands the total engagement of our whole person in the service of God. Think about it this way. Uh, It is not enough to tell your wife and new mother of your three-month-old child on Mother's Day that you, and I quote, remember that it's Mother's Day. It's not enough to just say you remember, right? That doesn't cause your new wife to feel loved and appreciated, right? It doesn't cause her to feel valued and served. It makes her think that she is an afterthought, right? It makes her think that you may have actually forgotten, or so I've been told. I'm not sure, you know. Anyways. You see, remembering the Sabbath is similar, right? You see, it doesn't, it's not just about remembering a day. It is about showing our love for God in a way that is special, in a way that highlights who he is and, and our relationship with him. You see, the passage says that the way that we remember it, the way that we practice it, is by keeping it holy. Verse 8 says that word holy means to be set apart for a special purpose, a sacred purpose. One commentator writes it this way, to keep something holy in a biblical sense is to dedicate it exclusively for worship, whereas the other six days of the week are for us and and our work. The Sabbath is for God and his worship. See, verse 9 tells us the Sabbath is to be set apart unto God. You see, we'll see going forward in the command. The command to remember the Sabbath is absolutely for our good. But it's not about us. It's actually about God. It's unto him. You see, when we think about the Sabbath, the first thing that comes to mind is usually the absence of work. We usually think about not working. But as Trevin Wax notes, in reality, the Sabbath is ultimately not about the absence of work, but about the presence of worship. Remembering the Sabbath is more than just mentally taking note of what God has done for you. It's about celebrating God's work in your life and in the world. It's about worship. But as Trevin Wax alluded to, the, while the Sabbath is ultimately about worshiping God, it's a worship that's made possible by the absence of work, by the absence of labor, which brings us to the prohibitions that we see in this command. Verse 10 says, But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the, to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, You see, that word translated as Sabbath, what it literally means is to rest or to cease or to rest. You see, the way that God tells his people to remember the Sabbath, to make it holy, is is by ceasing from their work. 
by resting from their work. For the Israelites, this looked like a complete and utter stoppage of all work from sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. Parents and children, masters and servants, animals, even foreigners in in people in the towns. Everyone was supposed to stop working and take time to rest and worship God together. Leviticus 23 calls the Sabbath a day for a day of sacred assembly. You see, the idea here is that everyone should work and everyone should rest because everyone should be free to worship God. Jen Wilkins sums it up best this way. She says, Sabbath is the ceasing of labor for the purpose of of actively devoting ourselves to the joyful task of worship, which is our true calling. You see, rest is a way that we worship because it is a reminder that we are not in control, that we are not the one on whom all things rest, that we are not the most important, that God is. Now, over time, the Israelites, they forgot about the Sabbath and, or they misplaced the focus of the Sabbath. Instead of emphasizing the purpose being about resting and worshiping God, they focused on the prohibitions about not working. They made up tons and tons of extra rules down to the most minute kind of detail about what qualified as work and what you could or could not do on the Sabbath. And there's this highly intricate system of all this kind of stuff. And, and partially what we see is that that is a result of the seriousness in which God talked about, the, the, about this command in the Old Testament. Exodus 35 says that whoever does any work on it should be put to death. That's pretty serious. But mainly, this, this kind of religious observance of this idea was a result of the religiosity being the default mode of the human heart. You see, we want to be in control of the way God sees us. We want to be the ones who are, have our hands on the steering wheel of our relationship with God. We, wanna, we want to be the ones that are the drivers. The, we want to be in the driver's seat when it comes to that. We want to know what counts. We want to be able to shift it and to change it based on our own efforts. You see, and it's this religious attitude that Jesus so fiercely opposed each time the religious leaders confronted him about the way that he was keeping or remembering the Sabbath. To be clear, Jesus never broke the Sabbath. He never broke the fourth command, but he had no problem breaking all of the religious add-ons that the religious people tried to keep adding on top of it. At least six times throughout the Gospels, we see the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, coming to Jesus and confronting him about the way that he is keeping the Sabbath, or the way that they think he's not doing it. And in all of these cases, Jesus tells them that they have missed the point. In all of the cases, Jesus highlights how they have missed, fundamentally, they have misunderstood what the Sabbath is all about. It's not simply about not working. The goal isn't to see who can do the most resting. The goal isn't to see who can do the least amount of working. The point is about intentionally making space for resting in and worshiping God. You see, Jesus didn't break the fourth command to remember the Sabbath. But he didn't abolish it either. Instead, like all the other commandments, what we see is that Jesus fulfills it. You see, Jesus, uh, you see, he fulfills it. He, it didn't simply, he didn't simply cease from working on Saturdays. You see, what Jesus did is that he finished the work that God has sent him to do. And then as Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, when he had finished his work, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. You see, the Old Testament Sabbath it pointed to the full and final rest that can only be found in Jesus. 
You see, in fulfilling, these, in fulfilling the fourth command, Jesus removes the ceremonial and civil aspects of this command. If you remember, we talked about the law having ceremonial, civil, and moral commands. Right? And so Jesus removes the, the ceremonial and the civil aspects of the fourth command. These, these laws were a shadow of the real and lasting things that God meant to give us all along. These laws, they had been set aside because as Colossians 2.17 tells us, the substance, the, the point of it really belongs to Jesus. You see, the judicial penalties and the ceremonial legalities about resting on Saturday and and about gathering the specific order of the way that that gathering was supposed to happen, those have been eliminated. In the early church, they understood this, which is why they were okay with changing the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. You see, for thousands of years, the Israelites had been resting and gathering for worship on Saturdays. And now suddenly... People who had be, Jewish people who had become Christians, they started gathering for worship on Sundays almost immediately after Jesus' resurrection. You see, but what's even more important, what's even more telling about their understanding of Jesus' fulfillment of this command is that Sunday was a work day for them. Sunday was a work day in the ancient world. It, it, wasn't, it wouldn't be for another couple hundred years in the, with the Emperor Constantine that the, day, the weekly day off would switch from Saturdays to Sundays. See, the point isn't that Sunday is the new Sabbath and it's not the new day that Christians everywhere are supposed to gather for worship. The point is that Jesus Christ himself is the Sabbath. That he is the rest of God that we are called to have. That he himself is the Sabbath and that if we are resting and rejoicing in him, then that's how you fulfill this command. You see, Kevin DeYoung writes, the fourth command, fulfilling it, Jesus showed us the fullest, deepest meaning of the Sabbath, namely that we should trust in God to be our provider, our sustainer, our deliverer, and our savior. You see, remembering the Sabbath isn't ultimately about making sure you show up at church. It isn't ultimately about making sure you don't work on a Sunday. You see, it's possible to be going to church. It's possible to be not attending work on a Sunday and still not be resting. See, the Sabbath is a principle long before it's a day. And we can only honor a day of rest and worship if we really have entered the Sabbath rest that God calls us to have in Jesus. See, ultimately, the fourth command isn't about how we live on one day a week. Instead, it's fundamentally about living a life every day that is characterized by faith and trust and dependence on God. Living a life characterized each day by resting in the finished work of Jesus. You see, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't intentionally set aside or carve out time each week for resting and gathering gathering to worship as God's people. In fact, it means the opposite of that. But it means that those things should be a natural outworking of what it looks like for us to intentionally choose to rest. To intentionally choose to obey this command and to rest in Jesus. See, at the heart of the fourth command, right, is, is not about what we do on one day a week. It has implications for what we do on one day a week. But ultimately, it's about resting in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. And see, so that's the what of the fourth command. But verse 11, it shows us the why. And in examining the why, we see how this command reveals not just what God wants, but it reveals what he's like. You see, verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
You see, God says the reason that the Sabbath rest is so important is because it's one of the ways his people bear his image and reflect something about him to the world. You see, and from the very creation of the world, God has been revealing himself to be both a working God and a resting God. You see, I think one of the most things that gets overlooked when we think about the fourth command to remember the Sabbath is that it contains a positive view of work. See, it doesn't say never work, work is bad, work is a curse, work is evil. In fact, it says the opposite of that. It, it, it says, verse 8, for six days of the week, God's people are to, to labor and to do all of their work. It encourages that, it promotes that. Verse 11 says, for six days, God himself worked as he made the world. You see, God's people don't work so that God can rest. Nor is our work simply a necessity. Instead, we work because we are made in the image of a working God. You see, that's why whenever you spend the day just like, like lounging in your bed and watching Netflix all day, like you think that that's going to be the thing that satisfies and fulfills. Like it never, like at the end of those days, it never actually feels life-giving. You just kind of feel like a slob, right? And you're just like, I don't know where these crumbs came from, right? Or like, what's going on with me? Like, you don't actually feel rested. In fact, if you're honest, you'd feel just as tired as you did when you started the day. See, and the reason for that is because, because that is not what you were designed to do. See, that is not what we're designed to do. See, we are made in the image of a working God. Work is not a curse. It is not the enemy. You see, and when we try to avoid work at all costs, what we're doing is we're going against the grain of a God whose image we are made to bear. Rest is good. Rest is important. But work is equally as important as we bear God's image. You see, work is a good thing. It's not a curse. In Genesis, before the fall, God gives Adam work to do in naming the animals and in caring for the garden. See, work is a part of God's good creation. Jesus, in John chapter 5, says, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. You see, so God is working, and the truth is as well that Jesus gives us is that, that God also has work for us to do for him in this world as his image-bearing representatives. And I just need you to hear this. Your occupation is not the work that God has given you to do for him. Your occupation is not the work that God has given you to do for him. If you believe that your occupation is that thing, it will ruin every job for you. It will ruin everything for you. Instead, your occupation is simply an avenue by which you get to do the real work that God has called you to do, which is to be his image-bearing representative in the world. You see, that changes the way that you view work. It fundamentally makes every job have meaning and value and purpose, even the ones that are hard and even the ones that are difficult. You see, and when, when, that, when you get that, when that clicks for you, it changes your work. You see, we work not in order to get something from God, not in order to just to simply provide for ourselves. We work because we're made in the image of a working God. But we're also called to rest in this passage because we are made in the image of a resting God as well. See, for six days God created, but he rested on the seventh. And God didn't rest because he needed to. The psalmist tells us that God doesn't sleep. He doesn't get tired. He never gets depleted. Instead, God rests so that we can rest in him. He rests so that we might rest in his finished work. See, in Egypt, a slave's worth was measured by the amount of bricks they produced. 
Israelites, they have been in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. And in Egypt, the, the, the identity of a slave was measured. Their value was measured in the amount of bricks they had produced. And so if you couldn't produce, then you would get punished. And if you couldn't produce, then you didn't have any value, right? You were just expendable. So brick after brick, the Israelites got drilled into them that their value came from their output. You see, in, in both working and resting and calling his people to work and rest, what God is saying is that your worth is not about what you do for him. Your worth is not about what you do for him. He doesn't need something from you. Your worth comes from being in relationship with him. And so you can, he rests so that we can rest in him. You see, and our, and our intentional resting is an expression of our relationship with God. And it's an expression that our relationship with God is rooted not in our performance and not in our productivity, but in his performance on our behalf. See, but there's one more thing that the fourth command reveals to us about God, and we actually find it in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy is it's kind of like the director's cut, the director's commentary of the movie, right? You get all like the kind of behind-the-scenes information about what was going on. It's like, that's kind of the way it's helpful to think about Deuteronomy sometimes. And, and in the version of the Ten Commandments that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 5, what we see is that the reason for the Sabbath is different. In Exodus, the why of the Sabbath was rooted in remembering God's work and rest and God's work and rest in creation. But in Deuteronomy 5, we see that the why of the Sabbath is rooted in remembering God's work in redemption. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5 says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. You see, the why of the Sabbath reveals not only that God is a working and resting God, but that his, he is a redeeming and sustaining God as well. You see, Ezekiel 20 says, God tells the people, I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between us so that they would know that I, the Lord, made them holy. You see, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out. And you know what he didn't need? Any help from them he did it by himself under his own volition with all of his own power and with no help from anyone else you see in remembering the sabbath is about remembering god's work in redeeming and sustaining his people you see no other society in ancient times took a day off you see, most of that is because the survival is often just a day-to-day, season-to-season thing. But God commands his people to take a Sabbath because he wanted to remind them that he bore the true responsibility for both saving them and for providing for them. You see, remembering the Sabbath then is fundamentally a counter-culture declaration of trust in God, in his work to save and sustain. You see, God is sovereign over us. He's, he saves us. We don't save ourselves. You see, he sustains us. We don't sustain ourselves you see in a regular rhythm of making space for rest and worship is one of the ways that we remember and proclaim what is true about him he is a god who works and who rests but he is a god who redeems and who sustains and it's god's image bearing people as we think about obeying this command what it's about is about imaging him about reflecting revealing something about who he is See, and that leads us to how this command confronts us. You see, I said before that, that the heart of obeying this command isn't about showing up at church or about just simply not working on a Sunday, but instead it's about resting and rejoicing in Jesus' finished work on our behalf. 
You see, the truth is, is that all too often our lives reveal that we don't actually work unto him and we don't actually rest unto him if we're honest. You see, instead of Jesus being our primary focus and our source of identity and the thing that we depend on for our future, our work becomes those things for us. We look to our work to be the thing that gives us our identity and our value and our worth. We, we look to our jobs to, to be the thing that we find our purpose for, our sense of fulfillment in life. We, we look to our careers to be the thing that provides for us, the thing that sustains sustains us and instead of working unto God we end up working unto ourselves and it's killing us Janie Ortland she writes this she says we have developed a God neglecting soul starving pace of life bearing the weight of the world on our shoulders and our compulsive self efforts show that we are afraid to rest it is a form of pride and of self dependence See, Tim Keller, he describes this, this sense of self-dependence, this sense of looking for our identity and our purpose in something other than God as the work under the work. You see, and what it does is that it, the work under the work, it both spoils the good gift that work is intended to be, and it keeps us from ever being able to truly rest. I remember a while back, Han and I were watching a, a show that we, that we like to watch, and in it, one of the characters is a surgeon, and he has a brain tumor. And there's this scene where he is talking with his friend about why he's really afraid. And what he says is that what he's really afraid of isn't dying, but losing his ability to be a surgeon. You see, he says, I have been a terrible at a lot of things, but I am darn smart and I am a darn good surgeon. And if I can't be those things, then I don't know who I would be. You see, his, his friend responds in the scene, well, you'd be my friend. And there is this long pause because what is abundantly clear is that that is not enough. You see, for Dr. Glassman in this scene, his work is as much to do about helping others as it is about him. You see, he needs it to know who he is. You see, the, the ultimate fear that he has isn't dying. It's about the loss of the source of his identity. You see, and that fear is paralyzing him far more than the disease is. You see, it's the work under the work at the end of the day puts us in the same spot. See, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we accomplish, it's the work under the work that makes rest impossible. See, it makes it so that even when we try to rest, our rest isn't about God, it's about us. It's just this selfish thing where we're just trying to recoup our energy. You see, it's a self-fulfilling, self-gratifying kind of rest. See, Sabbath rest, the kind of rest God calls us to is a rest that ultimately isn't about us, but that is about Him. It's for our good, but it's about God's glory. It's, it's for our life, but it's ultimately it's about God's name. You see, in our inability to work and to rest rightly, it reveals reveals the gravity of our sin-sick hearts. See, the fourth command, it leaves us all utterly condemned, out of line with God's word and his ways. None of us measure up to it. You see, but it's here under the weight of our sin and God's just judgment of it. It's here under the weight of that the gospel is able to be the transformingly good news it's meant to be. You see, this command, it comes, it shows us our sin, but it also shows us the path of a new life, a life that is characterized by transformation of a relationship with a working, 
resting, redeeming, and sustaining God. You see, because God's works, we work, but because God finished the work, we can rest even in our work. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 and 10 says it this way, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. The, the work that is being talked about here is not just a physical work, but, it, but it is, it's a legal kind of work. It's a legal kind of rest. It's, the, it's that feeling of rest that you see on the face of someone who, who, when the jury comes back, they receive the not guilty verdict, right? See, only the gospel can give you that kind of soul-level, refreshing kind of rest. You see, the Ten Commandments, they, they show us our sin under and our guilt under God's law, but the gospel, it shows us a way out. The gospel shows us that it's not by our imperfect efforts, but it's by the sufficient and perfect efforts of Jesus that we are free from the burden of work. You see, the one we are free from in Jesus, the one who obeyed perfectly for us, the one who images God perfectly for us, the one who worked on our behalf, the one who finished because his work was finished, and the one who redeemed us, and the one who is ongoingly sustaining us. You see, the only way you can truly rest is by coming into a saving relationship with Jesus, our working, resting, redeeming, sustaining King. See, some of you, you are here this morning and you are desperately seeking a rest that you can't find anywhere apart from Jesus. Or some of you, you found that rest in him, but you frequently forget it. And you never stop working and worrying and trying to prove yourself to your, to your parents or to your spouse or to your kids or, or to your boss. And you've never really appropriated what it means to have the rest that Jesus offers you. You see, there's always something else you need to do uh, to show the world that you are worth something, to, to prove that you are valuable or that you are loved or that you're worth having around. You see, but the good news of the gospel is that it doesn't begin with anything you do for God, but with entering a relationship with him based on what he has already done for you on your behalf. So you don't have to earn anything. You don't have to prove anything. The world does not depend on you. Your salvation, it does not depend on you. And even in an ultimate sense, your family does not even depend on you. You see, the good news of the gospel is that you can rest because this life and this world is not ultimately about you. Ultimately, it is about God, a good God who is a working and resting God, a redeeming and sustaining God, and a God who has called you into life and relationship with him. I just want to invite you this morning to hear Jesus' invitation to rest, to hear the life that he extends to you, the offer of rest that he holds out for you, the freedom from the work under the work, the freedom from the endless, tiring search for an identity and a purpose and a meaning. See, the, the rest that Jesus offers is a sweet, fulfilling kind of rest. So the invitation this morning is to trust him, take him at his word, to believe him, to, to run to him so that you might have the rest that your soul is longing for. You see, and when that clicks, when it clicks for you that the rest that you are looking for is found in Jesus, that the rest that you are longing for is fully satisfied in him, it changes you. You see, you find that God changes you into the kind of person that wants to know him, that wants to remember him, that wants to worship him and to reflect him. You see, the 
the soul level rest the gospel gives you through Jesus' perfect saving work on your behalf. It gets worked out in a spiritual and in a physical kind of rest. You see, a life lived in light of the rest that Jesus offers should look different than the world around us. And I just need you to hear this this morning. The invitation for us to obey the command to remember the Sabbath, it looks different for each of us. The goal is not for me this morning to give you a new list of all the things that you should or should not be doing to remember the Sabbath. Talk with God yourself. Ask him what he is inviting you to do in remembering him, to making a regular rhythm of rest and worship unto him. Talk with him about it. Ask him. He wants to give you direction about that. He wants to lead and guide you in that. But a few principles this morning that might help you as we seek to obey God's command, as we being transformed by the gospel. And the first is simply this. To rest in Christ takes intentionality. To rest in him takes intentionality. None of us drift towards resting in Jesus. The default mode of our heart is not to rest in him. The default mode of our heart is to rest in our own efforts and in our own advances. You see, we don't drift towards rest in Jesus. We drift towards laziness and we drift towards overworking. We don't drift towards rest in him. And so if we want to be a people that intentionally pursues an obedience to him, then our rest is something that's going to take intentionality. You're not going to accident yourself into resting in him. So what is it like for you to intentionally think about putting practices into your life that help you to remember him and to rest in him? You see, secondly, resting in Christ, it takes constant reminders. You see, that's why prioritizing gathering and worshiping with God's people regularly is so critically important. You see, we forget all the time. We forget all that God has done for us. We forget who we are in him. We forget that he is worthy of our worship and of our lives. And so one of the reasons why God's people, even after this command was, even after the civil and ceremonial aspects of this command were about, still chose to regularly and consistently gather for a day of worship is because what they know intuitively and what the Bible teaches explicitly is that we, that remembering and resting in Jesus, it requires that we are reminded of him often. See, that's why it's so important for us to gather regularly for worship as God's people. You see, God is honored when, it come, when we come together to worship him, but what we need to be on guard against is the legalism that our hearts are tended towards in all of its forms. You see, in the way that we avoid legalism as we think about remembering the Sabbath is by remembering that the call to a rhythm of regular rest and worship is ultimately about celebrating the freedom that we have in Jesus the freedom from the work under the work that he provides. You see, that's what we're doing every week when we remember communion. That's why we take communion every week. It's because we forget. We forget all that Jesus has done for us. We we forget who we now are in him. We forget the rest that he offers and provides. And so every week we gather and we worship and we celebrate and we center the teaching of God's word and we take communion because we need to choose to intentionally remember all that God has done for us. It's what our hearts need. 
You see, and it's good news, it's life for us to remember those things. You see, when we celebrate communion each week, what we're doing is we're remembering Jesus' finished work on our behalf, his body and blood broken and shed for us so that we might be able to rest in the freedom that his finished work on our behalf provides. See, communion, it doesn't make you right with God, it doesn't save you. Instead, it's an opportunity for you to remember all that Jesus has done for you so that you might be overwhelmed, that you might be filled to overflowing with a love for him and a great gratitude for him and a, and a, and just like a, a joy in him that overflows into a life of obedience towards him as his redeemed people who seek to bear his image and reflect his glory. You see, the bread and the juice, they're in the back, and you take the bread and you can dip it in the juice. And so if you put your trust in Jesus, then during our time of worship, if he is the thing in which your soul rests, then go back and take communion. Do it as a reminder of all that he has done for you. Or if your heart this morning knows that you have put your trust in him, but you are feeling tired, do it as a remembrance of the rest that he offers you, the rest that his work provides for you so that you might have a rest in him. But if this morning you're here and Jesus is not the sole rest that your spirit has desired, if he's not the one in which you look to to give you rest from the work under the work, And I want you to know you are welcome here. This place is, you are welcome here. In fact, this place, this church was began for you so that you might find rest in him. But I would encourage you this morning, hold off on taking communion. Instead, come to Jesus. Ask him to give you the rest you are looking for so that communion might be a remembrance of that one day. So as we take communion, as we sing, as we talk with God, I would encourage all of us Ask God to show you the rest that he is calling you into. Ask him to show you the the life characterized by dependence on him. Trust in him. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. Ask him to show you what he is inviting you into. And then ask him to show you Jesus. Ask him to make Jesus beautiful to you. Ask him to help you to see the overwhelming, overarching, finished work of Jesus on your behalf so that you might be motivated and empowered to live a life of work and rest unto him. To that end, let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you this morning. God, we humbly confess that so often, all too often, our lives reveal that we are working and resting unto ourselves. And so, King Jesus, we come this morning asking that you might enable us to work and to rest unto you that you might enable us to find the rest that our souls are looking for in the finished work of Jesus. Might that empower us, might that change us, might that shape us each and every day. King Jesus, would that cause us to live lives every day that are characterized by a dependence and a trust and a hope in you. And might that get worked out in our lives in patterns of regular rhythms of rest and worship unto you. King Jesus, you are worthy of all of it. But the good news is that you're not just worthy, but that you empower us to live a life unto your worthiness, to live a life of obedience unto you, the worthy God. And so God, we come this morning. Without you, we cannot obey. Without you, our souls are endlessly searching for a rest we cannot find. Oh, but with you, we have all that we need. So King Jesus, help us to rest in you. God, for our good, more than anything, King Jesus, for your great glory in all the world, we pray.
Amen.